are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. So, Jack, why don't you tell us what you're up to these days? Okay, so currently I'm a partner in a uh, uh, company called Fundseeder. The site is fundseeder.com. And basically uh, what the site is designed to do is to connect undiscovered trading talent with uh, investors who are interested in finding undiscovered trading talent. So we're sort of the middleman in that process. And uh, the idea really was not mine. It was uh, my uh, partner, Emmanuel Bellari, who, uh, who was an associate of mine from a previous uh, uh, venture that I was involved in. And uh, he had this idea, and he had tossed it out to me a couple of years ago, and that's what I thought. And I said, gee, it sounds like a really good idea. So um, I agreed to join him on it. He's, he, it's really his primary uh, – he's the primary mover on it, and it was his original idea. And he's the CEO, and he's the one who's really doing the bulk of the work. But I've, uh, I'm basically involved in, in terms of helping, in helping, design, in helping design the site, how it works, and, and then involved with, with, with traders and so forth. So uh, uh, basically, that is my current involvement. This is funseater.com. And, and the other element of it that's, that makes it, I think, somewhat unique is that it not only tries to connect undiscovered trading talent with, with investors, but it, uh, it verifies the track records so we don't we don't just take uh, traders' tra- track records and post them like a lot of sites do. What we do is we we get them to agree to have us download the their 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 uh, you know daily downloads of their records directly from the brokerage firm. So that verification process, I think, is a very critical part of it. How many users are currently using uh, Funseeder? Uh, I just spoke to Emmanuel today, and uh, it's a little over 4,000. Jack, I know they have a lot of like um, stock market-related contests and, and games and, and also similar ones where you know somehow you could obtain uh, a certain individual's performance and then have some of your funds co-managed by them. Um, what stops... like? When you do a ranking of the performance of these investors or traders, what stops one from taking unnecessary risks to obtain outside outsized returns? Because typically when you look at some of these contests or, or platforms like this, you're going to see guys that are going to get like thousand percent returns and probably you could equate that to a lot of outside risk. And, and then how do you filter um, yeah, those guys doing kamikaze versus guys that are genuinely like good and have a consistent record. Yeah, that's an intelligent question. Uh, first of all, the the algorithm we use, and uh, well, we have a number of statistics on the site, but but the main algorithm that ranks it uh, uh, is a proprietary algorithm that is relatively sophisticated. I did not develop it. We have a math, mathematician who's our uh, CTO. And um, it, it's you know his work that that's behind it. But essentially, uh, I guess I understand enough math to understand roughly what he's doing. But um, it, it does take into account. It does um, look at uh, analyzes distributions and looking for returns that uh, the signal when returns are likely part of a martingale approach or uh, 
uh, or an outside tail risk approach or whatever. The, so the distributions will have certain features to them uh, that will, even though it does, even though the large laws may not have shown up, uh, it will still be uh, sort of implicit in the type of distribution. Uh, the, 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 the middle portion of it will, will look different uh, than it would than a normal than it would for normal traders. Jack, why don't you give me your best case argument for why markets are not efficient? Uh, uh, Actually, I I have a book which is actually one of of my lesser read books, uh, because it's not a market wizard book, but it's called Market Sense and Nonsense. And it was originally the first chapter, but I moved it to the second chapter because it was too long and and, uh, maybe too rough of a start. But I actually filled a fairly good-sized chapter with all reasons of why the markets are not efficient. So I'll give you just, a, just some more off the top of my head here. And, and, and there are multiple reasons why the markets are not efficient. Oh. Uh, so you can, do, you can do an empirical approach where you can show that you know, the, the common, one common mistake people make is they say, well, yeah, yeah, you get people like your market wizards, some of these guys, but they're, they're just the lucky ones. You have all these guys that are going to lose, and if you have enough traders, some of them are going to really do well. What they miss on that is, yeah, that is true, but how many traders do you need to get a Thorpe? And so, like, you really need, you would need uh, not only trillions, you would need, like, I mean, trillions is like, uh, what is it, uh, 10 digits over I mean, you, you need like something with 60 digits to it to get a Thorpe by chance. So there are people who have track records out there that are mathematical impossibilities, not improbabilities, but mathematical impossibilities uh, if the markets were around. So you have, a, you have a empirical demonstration that there are people who clearly have records that could not have been compiled, even no matter how many traders you want to assume. Even if everybody in the, in the, on earth was a trader uh, and there were a, a billion times more traders than there are uh, people on the earth, you still couldn't get those records. So that's, that's the empirical argument. Mm-hmm. Then there's a the, the, the important argument, uh, oh, the other part, another empirical argument, part of an empirical argument, you have the markets themselves. So, you know, the, the uh, Fisher market hypothesis, assuming the practice of uh, sort of randomly distributed, uh, that, that, that type of uh, kind of model of the markets uh, completely falls apart when you get something like October 87. October 87 is actually uh, even more improbable than, than, than Thorpe's track record. So, I think there, I think I used the analogy that, and I had Wolfram, uh, the uh, website actually answered the question of an estimate of how many atoms there are in a universe, visible universe, and that's the only reason I was able to do it. But it turns <laughs> out that, that if you do the same thing with the October 1987, if you took a random, a random atom in the visible universe and repeated the process, picked the same atom, that's the probability in standard deviations of the October 87. So you get, empir- you get empirical things that are just, you know, just couldn't happen if the markets were, were efficient. Then you have things that are just, you have to be blind or a, you have to be very dogmatic. You have to be really dogmatic uh, to, to, um, to, to continue to believe in efficient market hypothesis when you see things on the side. Take the, take the, uh, there's millions of examples, but let's take really a very prominent one, uh, the internet bubble. So you have these stocks, they go from 5 to 200 or whatever it may be, and they go all the way back to zero again. Um, the, um, the internet index itself went up by, I believe, a sevenfold in one, one and a half years, and then in virtually perfect symmetry, went all the way back down to where it came, 
which was like an 85% decline, um, in the next uh, year and a half. So a year and a half, it went up like seven times and gave it all back in the next year and a half. And believe me, there was nothing dramatic that happened at that turning point. It was just that the only way you can explain it, the only way you can explain that, you can't go to the fundamentals. You had companies that were losing money all along. Go, you couldn't even talk about multiples because there were no earnings. There were never any earnings. So you had companies go, you know, companies that were only burning cash go to these ridiculous numbers and then go all the way back and go bankrupt. So uh, you can understand why they went bankrupt, but you can't explain to the fictional archipophysis that the market was taking known fundamentals and discounting them. Um, you can't explain the rise. You can only explain, you, you can explain the rise only by euphoria and emotional, uh, uh, emotional human behavior. And the decline you can explain by the fact that that emotional behavior took prices to ridiculous levels and then the, then the thing collapsed. So you don't need any... Uh, you don't need emotion necessarily to give you a collapse, but of course that builds on it too. So you're saying um, bubbles, basically. Bubbles yeah, are I mean, yeah, bubbles, right? Okay. So all bubbles are all bubbles are a demonstration that the markets are not efficient. So here's the thing: the efficient market hypothesis would like to have a nice, simple mathematical model with normal distributions and everything falls into place. Everything, you know, all the math could work out nicely. But but that's that's a model. It's not the real world. The real world. Is described by the by the efficient market hypothesis model some of the time and in broad terms, but what's lost is that the markets are not just a random process. You also have human behavior, mm. and human behavior causes extremes. You get extreme emotionalism. It's happened throughout history, and so any model that you have that doesn't incorporate human behavior. Uh, is, is just wrong. You're, you're missing one of the key elements. So I, you know, I, I like to say that markets, big, big, big price moves, big bull markets, or begin on fundamentals and they end on emotions. Um, so there is a time where, yeah, the fundamentals are describing why the market's going up, but then it goes way beyond there. And and why it goes beyond there is not because the fundamentals are getting more and more bullish. It goes way beyond there because of human behavior, and. Um, and you can't predict, it's like, there's a bit of chaotic behavior to it. In other words, you can take the exact same situation, and in one situation, let's say, like, we had the NASDAQ go up to 5,000. You know, I'm, I'm totally convinced that if you had uh, sort of parallel universes and ran the same experiment, they all the same things, you know, one time you might have to, you know, go up to 5,000, another time you might have to go to 8,000, another time you might have to go to 3,000. I think those things are not predictable. I think there's a certain amount of randomness in how far the emotionalism carries. And small changes, small tiny changes in certain things could result in big differences maybe in how far the extreme goes. It's not a predictable thing. And that's, the, that's what drives people to vision market hypothesis because can't deal with that unpredictability that, uh, you know, that it, you, you really can't predict it. You, 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 you can't say how far is, you know, is human behavior or human emotion going to go. But if you ignore that that's what's driving the market, you will have an incorrect model of how prices behave. Sure. Okay. So we have basically um, statistics of of traders that um, have been able to be successful in markets and, and but, but not only successful, but but ridiculously successful yes. in a return <laughs> risk from a return risk measure. Okay. And then we have basically bubbles and right. busts, which is another right. indication. What else yep. do we have on this list, okay. Jack? Then then you have uh, this is sort of you get to the uh, logic. The logical uh, misconceptions. So 
you have this idea, I don't know how many people have written articles or academic uh, papers even, saying, well, uh, if, if the markets weren't efficient, how do you explain the fact that, uh, that so many, you know, you think uh, all these managers and the average manager does worse than the index, you know, that type of sort of proof. So, uh, uh, you know, if the markets were random, then the markets couldn't be beat, right? And then they take say, so therefore, since we're showing you that the markets can't be beat by all these managers, average not being the index, Therefore, the markets are random, and that's that's a that's a flaw, that's a flaw in logic. Circular you know, that's reasoning. Taking, well, it's converse. It's assuming that the, that, that the converse of a statement is true. If a statement is true, the converse is true. So, for example, uh, what I used in the book, I think, was the example of uh, uh, you could say that uh, all um, um, let me say all uh, polar bears are white mammals. That's true, right? Mm -hmm. But not all white mammals are polar bears. bears. Yeah, it's a, that's exact same type of logic that they're using. You know, so just be so. Yes, you know, if the markets were efficient, uh, the markets, you know, you couldn't beat them. And but showing that all these instances where the markets are not beat by simple systems or managers doesn't prove that the markets are. You know, it's a flawed logic. Doesn't prove that the markets are efficient. Um, then there's the then there's the, this uh, misunderstanding about. Everybody has the same, you know, all the information is known at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. So that's also, if you think about it, it's a little imbecilic uh, in, the, in a sense that um, sort of the example I use is think, think of a chess tournament, right? I mean, everybody has all the same information. Everybody knows how the pieces move. Everybody knows, uh, you know, has read all the same chess books. Uh, everybody knows all the same, you know, information, has all the same information, but then you'll have you'll have uh, you know chess you know, you know certain people like Casper from his heyday who uh, who you know will crush the uh, will crush the competition. It's not because they know more. Uh, it's because they're more skilled in using the same information. Mm -hmm. And it's like anything else. Just because everybody has the same information doesn't mean that everybody will use that information the same way. That's why I mean the people I interviewed. You know, that information that they use, well, I talked about Taylor for Apple. I mean, everybody had the same information on Apple, presumably. He didn't have any, he didn't have any secret sources telling him what was going to happen with China. But he was well informed from information that was out there and took it to its logical conclusion. It's not that he had any secret information. He just interpreted that information more efficiently. So the idea that just because all information becomes the, disseminated instantaneously – and everybody has the same information, therefore nobody can manage. It's ridiculous. It's like saying, like I say, it's like saying that everybody in a chess tournament should be equally, should, everybody should have an equal chance of winning because everybody knows all the same rules and historical games. Can, can, you, can you basically say something like all information is known, but it's the focus on a particular set of data that's what makes it important? Uh, it's, I don't know if you had to focus part of it. Part of it is you like, focus Like, because he's on, in China, right, for Apple, so that yeah. was his focus. That was, yeah, so he knew which point to pull out. He knew yeah. which point to pull out. Yeah, an example, I talked about Marcus being able to, uh, the thing that I always remember is back in the years when I was a, just a research analyst, and when I mm. first met Marcus, in fact, it was his job that I took, he left to become a trader, mm. um, and so I would, you know, I came from an economics background. I would do, I would do these fundamental models. I remember uh, the on a cotton market. I went back and I researched every single post World War II year in the cotton market, and I came to the realization that um, 
there were only about three, three or four markets that were free markets because in all the other years, the government loan programs were, you know, were basically supporting the price and you really couldn't tell where the equilibrium was. Mm. But based upon that, I came up with sort of, well, you know, we were looking for a tight market and I came up with another year that was closest to it and it looked like this was going to be as tight as that and therefore I, the market was 25 cents. I said, you know, it should be able to get to the same as the other year, which was like, you know, like mid-30s or whatever. So that was my projection. Mm. And so that, that was right. Um, and the market got there, but then I thought, you know, anything much beyond that is going to be overpriced. Marcus understood that that was the first year that for Zen China was called the PRC. That was the first year that the PRC was a major buyer in the cotton market. Hmm. And, you know, I was looking at a little bunch of fundamentals and everything. He just looked at that one thing. He understood that the PRC coming into the market changed the game entirely. It would go, it would go way higher, way, way higher. Actually, cotton that year went triple. And, uh, and, uh, and that was one of my, I was just early in the market in the first couple of years. And I remember I had like a you know, two or $3,000 account and, uh, you know, I made a little money, but I, I, that, that, that little two or $3,000 account got wiped out on the cotton trade. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, that's interesting. I was, right, I was right about it at the beginning, but, but eventually, you know, but I was so wrong. And it's a good thing I only had two or $3,000 because I could have lost a lot more because I didn't understand risk management at that point yet either. So, um, uh, that's very anyway. interesting by the way, because the PBOC now is playing even a larger role on, uh, futures and commodities right now. Um, even surpassing the volumes of, of New York and, and like London and Chicago as well. Yeah. There's certainly an important element. Now, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. But in that case, they were completely, it's a completely new element. It was I mean, a new thing. Yeah. Thing was, that he understood there was a new factor in the market that you couldn't find in history, but he understood what the significance of that factor was. Mm-hmm. Again, so like you say, it's, fo- it's focusing on the right part. Now, other people may have known about you know, PRC, but they didn't understand, including me, didn't understand mm-hmm. the significance of it. Well, if you, if you watch like the news or something like CNBC or, or read the news wires, you'll, you'll actually see that. It will be information where a no, but they'll say, well, XYZ stock is down because of this. Right, like so, it's Amazon's margins are getting more thin. Well, we already know that, um, and that's why the stock is down. So, it, to me, it seems as if the news cycle, which tries to explain to some extent about price behavior, um, shifts its focus on whatever is the hot topic of of that time. Absolutely, and and it's even worse than that. I, I, people think that. The uh, financial news, financial, whatever you want to call them, news networks or whatever, uh, that they're, they're, they're giving the fundamentals of why the stock or the market or a particular market or the market as a whole moved. That's not the way, that's the wrong cause and effect. Right. The market move determines what news is they give you. Exactly. So if the market, if, a, if, if, if Amazon is up on a given day, Building up some reason, something that's bullish about it, whether anything happened or new or not. If it's down that day, they'll dig up something that's bearish, whether, whether you know anything happened, because they have to have they have to have an explanation. But markets don't work that way. Markets markets discount, they overreact. You know, the markets don't work. That's that's sort of the efficient market hypothesis model where you think that the way markets work is every time there's a new pit of news, the market moves and. And that's the only way markets move. Baloney, that's not the way markets move. I mean, right. sure, there's some really new news. It'll impact the market, but that's the rare exception. Most times, nothing's happening that's really new. And it's just the market behaving based on the combination of known fundamentals and human behavior. And it's a mixture of those two. 
So uh, I've seen days, in fact, in that, uh, in that Market Sense and Nonsense book, I, I, I put an example in. On the same day, I was looking for that while I was writing the book, but there was one day where the market, uh, Bernanke, I think, uh, had given a talk, and I don't remember if it was bullish or bearish for the market. This does not make any difference. But let's have argument say, uh, say, say that his comments were viewed as, as being, uh, being negative. So the market was down. So early in the day, you had the news wires reading, you know, market down, the Bernanke's, you know, comments, blah, blah, blah. And then the market turned around and finished strong today. And the same news wire, the same news wire had a story market up because of Bernanke's comments, you know, right, right. the same, you know, it wasn't like an even different news wire, the same news wire. And this happens all the time. So uh, it's, it's laughable, actually. <laughs> so, Jack, is there anything else on that list of? Um, yeah, there proofs? are. I'm sure, I'm sure there actually there are, there are others that I've probably uh, that I that I have. Um, let me see what, um, you know, we, we talked about the fact that um, I, I, I use the analogy and then this is part of what we talked about the missing ingredient. I use the analogy of uh, like I showed, showed a recipe of a chicken soup and there was one ingredient missing, which was a chicken. And my point there was that the, the efficient market hypothesis is like a chicken recipe soup without the chicken because it's missing a key element, namely human behavior. So, that, But we talked about that, 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 that but that's uh, a useful way of, of considering it. Um, and there, there were probably there was probably still some other things that I had. So, uh, looking at it from around the sense, though, I think it's hard to look at all of those facts and 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 continue to believe that the markets are efficient. You know, it's right, just uh, right. I mean, I don't know if evolution is uh, is a hypothetical theory and not true. You know, um, uh, if you if you have deep seated religious beliefs uh, um, and you don't want to be confused by science, you, I guess you could do it, but. It, you can't do it if you're willing to look at facts. So, so Jack, you're also a well-known author for the whole um, Market Wizard series. I can proudly say I have a majority of them and read a majority of them. Um, I think that the little um, book of Market Wizards um, is my least favorite out of them because of the, the substance in which like, you know, some of the original, like, uh, I guess the first three, um, had, they're vastly much more thicker with tons and tons oh, yeah. of more anecdotes and, and stories and insight. Um, I, I guess my question would be is based on all of these conversations that you had with all of these guys, what, what are some of the key things that, um, traders and investors should take into consideration? Yeah, that's you know, that's always a hard. That's always a question I get, and always a hard one to answer because <laughs> because when you think about it, really, those thick books that you mentioned are really the answer to that question. Uh, and any answer I give is always woefully, tremendously inadequate and leaves out. If I give two or three points, I'm leaving out ninety-seven others. Yeah, um, I, so I always I, felt as if those original thick ones say they were for like very advanced, and then that little book version was for very beginners. Yeah, well, basically, I mean, the little, the little book of Market Wizards is not the same. It shares the Market Wizard uh, part of the name, which is the yeah. letter, of course, so, you know, obviously. But um, it's, it's certainly a different type of book and uh, always was promoted at, you know, for what it was, which is basically a distilling of the key points from the other books. Uh, so obviously, like well, there were uh, four of a market wizard books, which uh, I guess about three of them are about five hundred, maybe one's a little short, about three. So you're talking probably 
maybe 1,800 pages of text. So you're still instilling all of that down into a notebook is kind of a little, not, not only in its length, but also in its dimensions, its physical dimensions. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a John Wiley uh, series, the notebook. They, they have the, the, the whole idea that it's instilling down uh, larger volumes and, uh, or the key points of larger volumes into smaller books. That's their, that's their theme. But in any case, as I know, the book is also smaller dimensionally, so we're talking maybe the equivalent of, of 100 pages of the other books. Right. So you're talking going down from 1,800 to 100. So obviously it's not going to capture everything, but what I was trying to do with the little book is two things. One is I wanted to primarily, as you correctly uh, uh, pointed out, uh, is, is captured the more um, novice layman audience. And mm. it's written, that book is written in a way that anybody, you know, you don't have to be, you don't have to be a professional trader. You don't have to be a mathematician. You don't have to understand uh, risk analysis in a deep fashion. Virtually anybody can basically get that. It's written sort of in a, uh, I think, an easy narrative style. Uh, the the other books are are uh, basically intended not purely for professional traders. I think also uh, for, for really for it for even novice traders who are very serious. But they're much more serious. I, those other books will get into uh, much more detail about trading strategies, and uh, and and will have terms that may not be may be no foreign to to just a lay reader. Although I've always tried to explain things in bracketed form and in footnotes and whatever, so anybody who's serious will always have the information in the text itself uh, without being sort of lost. Uh, but they are of. Uh, Kind of a, at a higher level than than this notebook, and the notebook is also intended as a just a uh, kind of note. It's almost like a cliff notes of the other books. So if you if you read the other books and just wanted to get the you know, just be reminded of the key points, you could read the notebook and sort of get the essence of the other books. Maybe I won't pick out every single point you would have picked out, yeah. and not every highlight you would have picked out. But I, I I bet that I will get a lot that that notebook captures most of what people would highlight in the other books. I don't know if the word cliff notes would be fair for that. I, I mean, at, I, I was actually hoping for it to be like a cliff notes. I, I wanted it to um, convey the essence of each individual, but I know that would be next to impossible, right? So that, yeah, that was I wasn't just... trying diff, different goals. See, in the, in the original market was the books. I was very, very much trying to convey the essence of every trader, and then so far, and, and my favorite thing was when I would meet people. Who work for the traders says, yeah, boy, you really, you really got him right on, you know. So, I, so that's great because that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to capture each trader, uh, you know, their foibles, their their mannerisms, uh, the atmosphere, the and anything I could really, just not only to give the information, but also to give give a, uh, almost a tactile feel for the for what uh, what the interview was like and what the person was like as much as I could. So that was very much part of the goal was to capture the person as well. In the little book, that was not at all the goal. In the, in the little book, I wasn't trying to capture the person. I was trying to capture the key points of their advice. So right. it's, a, it's a bit different, yeah. So but I wasn't you know, trying to capture of any guys, of the color, any yeah. of the capture, because uh, the then it would no longer have been an old book. If I tried to do that, right. then you, you know, so it was a different goal. Because, so, you know, some of these guys, when, when you're reading, I, I found myself rereading um, like pages or even just sentences within, within like some of the original um, Market Wizard books. And I'd imagine that it would be an extremely difficult job actually to 
capture the essence of everyone to some extent. The uh, the difficult part uh, in doing these books, and people really have a misconception. People think you just turn on a tape recorder and you do the interview and you add the book. And it's really a very, very distorted uh, uh, perception of the process. Uh, the truth of the matter is that these interviews go on for quite a while. And I mean, I've had instances where, you know, I've interviewed a person over a period of two days or, or three separate uh, three, four-hour meetings. It varies with each person. But there's a lot more material uh, than, than is on the page. And like all audio interviews, if you transcribe them purely straight to the page, um, they're not going to read very well. And, uh, you know, you'll have people, people talk differently than they write. And, and so you'll start sentences and you'll go off on tangents upon tangents. And uh, it, 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 it just doesn't, it doesn't read well at all. And then you have a lot of, also when you're doing these interviews with traders, particularly, uh, and you have to get over the reticence of what they're going to talk to you, you know, willing to tell you and all that, you get a lot of stuff that's just not terribly, you have to go through stuff that's not terribly interesting sometimes to get the stuff that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can remember interviews where I would spend three hours not getting anywhere, and it wasn't until the fourth hour until I started getting stuff that was useful. So um, it's, um, it, the, the trick is, is basically to take, to extract the good, the the uh, real worthwhile stuff out of out of a lot of uh, material, right. and uh, and so people mistake me for being a good interviewer. I'm not a good interviewer. I'm a very good editor. Uh, it's <laughs> a difference. In, in terms of like all these market wizards, who's influenced you the most from a philosophical standpoint, and then from an investing and trading standpoint? See, I you know I don't know if anybody's influenced me in a, in a tremendous way. I mean, I can think of, uh, in terms of influence, I guess the most, influ- you know, what is the most influential advice when it comes to as far as any trading would be, um, and, and, and other people said it too, but the one who said it most explicitly in a way that really stuck in my mind uh, was Bruce Kovner uh, with the advice of uh, always know where you're getting out before you get in. Which to me, if I had to, if I was forced to only be allowed to give one word of advice to a would-be trader, uh, if, that, if I could only have one 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 element of advice, I guess that would be the that would be one. I don't. It'd be hard because it's got to be more than one. One isn't really enough. But that is. But uh, I consider that one of the most important pieces of advice that uh, that can be given uh, or taken, and important because. Uh, the Achilles heel for most traders will be losing too much on any given trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, anytime I've violated that rule, uh, I've regretted, regretted it. Um, and it's also important because it, it captures the reality that you have complete objectivity only before you're in, in a trade. That's why why getting decide where you're getting out before you get in is so important. So it, it does both of those. It, it sort of limits the damage that you can get on any single trade, which is absolutely critical to trading survival. Mm-hmm. And it ha- forces you to make a decision of where to exit before you get in, or at least have a plan on where to exit before you get in. And that's important because it has you making that decision in a rational rather than emotional way. So, so diving so, into so, that so, statement. Right. Yeah, sure. So diving yeah. into that statement, what approach do you find to be the most effective for setting this stop loss? 
Oh, oh well, obviously the easiest thing to do is simply pick a you know a literal stop point, put a, you know put a good little cancel stop in, and and that's and you know you could of course you could raise you know you can bring it in closer if the market goes in your favor. Mm-hmm. Um, and but unless, using what uh, methodology, Jack? In in your opinion? Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's the, that depends on what your methodology is. So the key here is. You have to pick it, and I think Bruce Kovner said said this. I'm paraphrasing him. Mm-hmm. You have to decide where the market should not go if you're right, right? Mm-hmm. So, and and depending on which approach is, there's different ways to decide that. So, if you're, you have some sort of technical approach, systematic approach, you'll have a mathematical answer to that question. If you are um, a discretionary trader, you'll have another answer. You know, so um, now, well, what point the market should go? It, it could be a million different ways. It could be, like I say, it could be some sort of technical points. It could be a sort of technical support level. It could be, uh, could even be simple as some sort of moving average crossing down below a certain point. Uh, or it could be something like, well, uh, the market's last relative low was made on important news. The market shouldn't go back to that point. It, it could be anything. It really depends on what your approach is. But the, the key is you decide where should the market not go if I'm right. And once you decide that, that's where you, then you, that's where you put your stop. And once you know where your stop is and you know how much you're willing to lose, that will define your position size, which is another important point, by the way. Yeah. And, and for some of the readers that are interested in, in like Warren Buffett books, for example, and they, they like to mimic, um, you know, some of, some of the, the approaches of the intelligent investor, um, you know, there, there's this idea that you could arguably buy or make an investment and, and hold it effectively forever. Um, how, what would you say towards um, kind of like a blanket statement like that? Well, it's still, you know, Buffett doesn't just buy and hold anything forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, if he's buying and holding something it's because, uh, in, in his analysis, something is very low priced relative to its ultimate value, and so he's basically buying a mispriced uh, uh, asset. Mm-hmm. And as long as the fundamentals don't radically change, he'll hold it because that's the type that it, it's true. Really, not just profit, but any value investor. And to take somebody, I could take someone that I, I interviewed, uh, uh, Joel Greenblatt, who uh, you know could you know, sort of Buffett is a hero of his. Mm. Uh, he, uh, I even sat in on one of his. Uh, it was a time he was teaching uh, Columbia Business School class, and uh, which he did because he liked enjoyed teaching. But uh, <laughs> the day I was there, he did a thing where. Uh, where he would he played Buffett, he sort of would you know talk and take questions. He took questions from his class and would answer them as Buffett would. But it became very confusing for the class and for myself because nobody could ever figure out whether he was answering as Buffett or as himself because it was very little delineation between the two. And, <laughs> Some and, alter uh, ego. Yeah. So because it's really similar, but 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 for, I can speak. You know, so uh, Greenblatt's you know uh, approach is the same in that sense, and it's uh, going. You know, you know, investing in in real value. Now, to be a value investor, you really can't do this type of stop. Stop. You know, stop. We talked about that. That, that right. type of approach is 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 incompatible with value mm-hmm. investing. It's totally incompatible. Um, and in fact, uh, Greenblatt had a really nice uh, uh, nice set of comments, uh, which I think was cute but very very true. 
And maybe the maybe the most true thing you can say about value investing, and he, uh, I hope I can get it right here, so I say, uh, number one, uh, uh, value investing works. Number two is value investing doesn't work all the time. And number three is, number two is why number one works. It's true. <laughs> so uh, in other words, if you didn't have the occasional 99 to decimate value investors, then you then everybody would become a value. You know, everybody would just you know do it, and it would self-destruct as an approach. But because value investing does go through periods where the market is irrationally priced for lengthy periods of time, and only if you are a real true value investor can you ride those things out uh, and come out ahead, uh, is why it continues to work. But it's a it's not an easy thing to do, and you have to be very savvy about it. And uh, in the wrong hands, it could be lethal, obviously, because um, somebody there's a difference between being a value investor who really understands the fundamentals and knows what they're doing, versus being somebody who says, "Well, I'm a value investor. And I'm going to stay with it into a company that ultimately goes 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 uh, bankrupt." Uh, so there's a there's a distinction here. I'm saying if one has the knowledge and the understanding to do a true value uh, approach, and that you are really a uh, a very savvy and talented and smart value investor, then there are times you will have to hold through periods where where the market is, uh, uh, where you're taking a substantially large loss and any type of risk management would have had you out of that based on the loss. Um, they, there's a great example of that that occurred, I don't know if you read Hedge Fund Market Wizards, but in that book, Martin Taylor who primarily is an emerging market manager, as far as I know, was a, you know has the best emerging mar- uh, market record ever compiled. Uh, but as he went on, he also eventually started investing, you know, investing also in um, in developed country uh, stocks as well. So he did both, uh, and his portfolio was a mixture of the two. Uh, concentrated investor, usually maybe only uh, fifteen positions, maybe even less. Uh, when I was there, when I interviewed him, um, he um, he was in the process of returning. Uh, he, was, he was managing about seven billion dollars, half in a hedge fund, half in a, in a long only, and uh, he was in the process of returning it all to investors because he didn't want to be bothered, main, you know, staying within what institutional investors wanted as like strict guidelines, like you know, never lose more than six percent of the month or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he gave me the example at the time. Uh, that uh, his single largest investment, which was causing his entire loss at the time, was Apple. Uh, and this was an Apple before, obviously before the split. And it had gone down from about 400 to 350 uh, right before I interviewed him. It was a 350 when I was interviewing him. And he went on to explain all the reasons why he was, he was like, I never heard anybody more convinced fundamentally about anything than he was about why Apple would go higher and why the street was wrong about all their expectations. And uh, the, the, the crux of the argument was essentially that um, uh, the street was extrapolating earnings. They were totally missing the boat that a large amount of earnings in the future would be becoming from offshore, particularly uh, China. And, uh, and they were not, their, their earnings estimates were not factored, their, their, their projections were not factoring that in. And if that was factored in, uh, Apple was ridiculously underpriced. So there was no way in the world he was getting out of it. And, uh, the, the stock more than doubled in, in, in the coming year, and that I think that when I interviewed him was probably not too far from where the low was. Uh, but that was a good example. He had taken a, about a, he was down about fifteen percent on a drawdown, which was almost all Apple. But he was 
he just was, there was no way he was getting out of it. He's a perfect example of a value uh, investor uh, mentality, but it's also an example of somebody who really, really understood the stock extremely well. And the same would be true, obviously, of Buffett and, and uh, people like Joel Greenblatt. So it's, uh, it's a different type of invest. It's a different type of world. Value investing is different than, than other types of uh, trading. I've always felt as if there was um, a bifurcation between um, a value investing approach and uh, a price analysis uh, approach. I've heard some interesting examples so far. Do you know of people that have been able to successfully um, merge those principles um, together to some extent? Uh, I, I feel as if the industry is missing some kind of, just like in science, you're, there's missing kind of like a general universal theory that kind of addresses uh, both to some extent. When you say price analysis, exactly what do you mean? Um, being price sensitive to some uh, extent, being able to, okay, so despite liking Apple, if there's a drawdown of 15%, you're still going to sell um, without being dogmatic about um, your valuation analysis. Yeah, and I, I don't think you can, like I say, hey, this is now my, this is my opinion. This, okay. Uh, so, I, you know, so I, hey, I got, I, maybe I'm wrong, but, but from, from my experience and from what I've seen, I would say that, the, that those are just incompatible, that if you go into, if you are going to be a true value investor, um, if the fund, the, the only way to really control your risk you can't do it in traditional ways uh, of like if the stock at this point is hit or whatever, uh, because what you'll end up doing is getting out of positions like Apple at 350 uh, or 360 or whatever it is, you know, right, right. before it really goes up a lot. Uh, so it's not an easy approach to use. The only way to control your risk on in that, in that situation is is um, by limiting the amount of your portfolio to any particular position. So so you can stand. Losing everything, but of course you should never lose everything because if you if you are truly a a value investor and know what you uh, who knows what they're doing, then you know you shouldn't be in any position that can go to say you shouldn't be in a position that can go to bankrupt. It should always be something that has real inherent value and it's limited to how much it can go down. Um, and but, but should you should be able to absorb a fifty percent loss. Uh, which could happen, say, in a bear market or something like that, yeah, as long as the fundamentals haven't changed. That doesn't mean that you saved everything all the time. Uh, surely, you know, the people I've just, you know, we've, we've talked about Buffett and, uh, and Greenblatt and, uh, as examples and Taylor, they, they all will get out of positions, but they'll get out of them because something has changed. They no longer like, like the position uh, because it's been a fundamental change. Mm. Jack, in your opinion, who is the wizard amongst wizards? Who, who, in your opinion, is is the greatest investor or trader um, that you've spoken to so far? Uh, well, there's lots of different approaches and lots of different people who are great. You know, um, so it's it's in some of its apples and oranges. It's really hard to compare. You know, you got great options. Like something like a John Bender was a phenomenal option trader, um, brilliant. Um, somebody like was Marcus. That? What's that? Why was that? Oh, it's he was he. Well, first of all, his approach was um, his basic philosophy was that uh, the market, the option market, obviously. I mean, this is part of it's not a uh, philosophy. This is a reality. 
is the option the option market works and prices itself. So it's always assuming neutrality. I mean, option market is generally neutral between you know our, our, our prices could go up X percent or down X percent because you know, no matter what's happened before, because that's just the way it, you know it assumes that there's a long haul distribution around prices and and arbitrage are going to keep prices. Roughly in line, you know, different models will give you different projects, slightly different numbers, but it's not going to be grossly different. Mm-hmm. Bender's understanding was that that may be the way the models work, but the reality is not doesn't work that way. If you, the, 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 uh, a log normal distribution doesn't describe really how a specific market will work, so it may be a good approximation sometimes, or maybe often, but a lot of, but there are many times it isn't. So, uh, for example, in our interview. Uh, one of the examples he gave was, let's say, the time gold. I forget where it was, but let's let's say gold was like at 400, if I recall, or uh, it was all over 400, low 400s. And and so um, his belief was uh, that um, if the market penetrated its critical level by something meaningful like 390, then it would cascade down. And so. Now, a 385 option would, would, would assume that there's a very, very low probability of getting uh, uh, the market coming to that price. But he understood that if, if the market went to 390 or 395 or whatever it might be, maybe not 390, 395, uh, then, the, then the odds of 385 getting it go up dramatically more than the tail then the, the tail probability would, of a log normal distribution would apply. So what he was always doing was looking for situations where the market was not accurately uh, uh, allowing for a potential tail type of move, and he, in fact, he made a fortune on the uh, beer market in 2000. When I spoke to him, it was 1999, and he was positioning himself puts with puts for a bear market, and so that was a you know sort of classic case of where he was assuming the market was not was not uh, really accounting for the risk that was inherent. Uh, you know, for the that the, the, the large move was much more likely than the option prices were allowing. So the, and he uh, he basically uh, you know kind of did triple digit returns in many multiple years. Uh, but then you have you have somebody like that. You have somebody like Michael Marcus who had his who had his run when he was at uh, Commodities Corp. Who who took a thirty thousand dollar account into over eighty million in a dozen years. Um, you've got people like. Marty Schwartz in his heyday, where he he was averaging twenty five percent a month, literally just trading S and P futures uh, for like ten years on almost. Um, yeah, and of course these things are not just they're not able to sustain that type of thing. But even so, I mean, you know, just for that period, it was just extraordinary. Uh, and then you have people like Thorpe, who um, who probably has the most incredible record of anybody interviewed in so far as. Um, well, his first fund, let's just take his first fund, which was 19 years running, uh, 19 years, 19% compound the return. But the key, but that's not the element. The element is uh, is that uh, he only had three losing months in 19 years, and they were all under 1%. And that is a, while compounding at 19%. So that, that type of track record is sort of, uh, if you want to run the probabilities on that, uh, I actually did it. The, I actually did it for the book. And uh I think I came up with the analogy that it was as likely to get his track record by chance as it would be to pick an, a- an atom uh, from the mass of the Earth, not the surface, but the actual physical mass of the Earth, and then to randomly pick the same atom again. Uh, that's that's would be in the same same rough. Well, actually, that would be a higher probability than, than Thorpe's record. So, uh, uh, 
Jack, so, I mean, I'd imagine you in your own personal portfolio have had some very big um, losing months based on having these conversations with these guys, at, at least when you were initially doing this, um, hearing their approach, their school of thought, seeing what you could implement on your own, but then talking to another individual and actually getting a little confused about, you know, what you would do in your own portfolio. Um, I'm assuming that happened. Well, the thing is, if you uh, think about it, one of the things, and I think you read the books carefully, you'll see one of the strongest things I emphasize, uh, and I do it also when I give talks, is probably the first major point I make when I give talks about the market, on a market was a theme, is that it's critical for people to find their own path, that there is no magic formula. So, I mean, I believed that for a long time. So even though I, I can interview, look, I can interview somebody like Thor, uh, who's a brilliant mathematician uh, and uh, started out as a field in physics, but, um, and, and who continually in his career came up with uh, uh, inefficiencies in the marketplace. Now, I couldn't duplicate what he did anyway because I just don't have that that quantitative. It was more actually a combination of both quantitative ability and um, and the creative insights. Uh, mm. But anyway, it's a talent and it's a skill and it's uh, there aren't too many thoughts around. Um, so that's it. Or like a Michael Marcus who who I knew personally and was a friend and you know for you know uh, for a while we used to get together for lunches um, you know when he was in New York and. Uh, uh, and I know, you know, from speaking markets with him, that I, he would he would look at the same markets I did, but he would just have this understanding about what was critical about a certain market at a certain time. Uh, and I could look at a hundred things and not know that the one thing that was really that was important, but he would. Mm-hmm. And that was again not because and he not, he wasn't particularly analytical, and I was, but he just had this kind of intuitive sense of what was important to the market. Mm-hmm. So. These different people have different skills, which are not not necessarily replicable. But what is important is certain things that they have to say. And you, a lot of times, it comes into the scope of risk management and stuff. But there are certain you know are things that they say that you can relate to your own approach, whatever it may be. But the thing that I always stress to people is that it's important. Whatever you know, whatever you do, you don't try to take it off a silver tray with somebody else. That's not going to work for you. Mm-hmm. You've got to. Uh, You've got to come up with your own approach. So I actually didn't try to uh, duplicate uh, other people, but more, more so, just try to uh, pick out those things that, uh, and there are things I emphasize in the books as well that I thought were important lessons, mm-hmm. which could be applied not necessarily just to their own approach, but might have much broader scope. Well, well, Jack, it's it's been. Uh real joy to talk to you about all this stuff. Maybe sometime we can talk more about that book that not everyone knows about. (laughs) And um, maybe there's some other, what other interesting chapters are in there, by the way? Yeah. uh, Well, I uh, basically, so the, the idea of the book, as you can tell by the title is, is to, um, is to try to dispel misconceptions people have about markets and stuff. So, you know, so the efficient, like the, 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 the what I call, by the way, that chapter is called the deficient market hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Um, then I have uh, a chapter on, um, uh, which goes, which uh, goes to the heart of, uh, of explaining why one of the biggest mistakes investors make is to believe that past performance is the way you pick investments and why uh, choosing things on past performance is, is, is extremely wrong-headed and actually 
Uh, and and there are certainly a number of instances where we're doing the opposite actually works better within certain guidelines. So, so, so what so, is the real-time indicator for that then? Because if you're trying to assess someone's ability, what can you use? Well, okay, so it's a difference. It's not just that. What the, it didn't mean necessarily just there are certainly individuals who maybe can do better and stuff like that. But what I was addressing really was the tendencies of uh, people to, in let's say, flock in and out of the mar- the board markets when, like you said, you know, like now the market has been doing well, you're getting more and more people investing, you know. But of course, in in 2000, 2008, and nine, you know, end of 2008, 2009, people were going the other way and and they wouldn't go in the market, you know, no matter what. Um, and uh, so this idea that um, that you can so on a market basis, you know, the worst if a market, the broad market has done poorly. And I did an analysis in that book. I showed how the relationship between past five, ten, and twenty-year performances, um, how you really wanted to invest during bad, post-bad periods as opposed to post-good periods. Uh, then you have it on sectors, and I looked at sectors uh, using the S and P sectors and showing how uh, stra- comparing the strategy of picking the worst sectors of the recent period versus the best. Um, and showing, you know, like people people flock to what have been the best performing sectors, and showing how actually on a return risk basis the worst performing sectors are actually better. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and the same thing on hedge fund uh, sec, uh, strategy. If you look at hedge fund strategies as sectors, uh, again, it's the same type of pattern. I did the same analysis there and showed the same types of results. Mm-hmm. So it's just the idea that you, but of course, on within any sector, within any uh, if you're picking an individual manager, that doesn't doesn't mean necessarily that a manager who's done particularly well is going to be doomed to do poorly. But it's true on broader markets and sectors and things of that nature, which is the way most people invest. Um, and then I, you know, did a thing on expert advice and you know examples of where why that's not a good thing. You know, you don't want to be listening to the experts. Um, <laughs> did a, I did a couple of chapters on risk management related issues. Uh, on track record pitfalls, all the things people do wrong about analyzing track records, uh, correlation misconceptions, portfolio uh, diversification misconceptions, hmm. uh, and you know, basically a lot of issues of that type. Well, I'm going to try to get a copy of that, and, and maybe next time we can discuss more into detail. Sure, about that. sure. I mean, there's lots of stuff there for. <laughs> Lots of stuff there for uh, you know. I I actually give a uh, two hour workshops on that book. So you oh know, really? Funny stuff that, yeah. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll check that out. Um, so, Jack, it, thank you very much for, for coming on. I hope we can do this sometime in the not too distant sure. future after yeah, I read it was the fun. book. Went into some different areas, which is always uh, always good. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com.